Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. If you have a Bible, uh, Matthew chapter 16 is where we're going to be. Um, I know we've already done a little bit of this. I'm going to do it one more time. Uh, this is our journey in the New Testament 90 days. We are one week in now. How'd we do this week, everybody? <laughs> there was some good, and then there was some. Uh, listen, here's what I want to do. I want to encourage you. Okay. Um, there will be all sorts of distractions. There will be all sorts of, um, discouragements, but I want to encourage you, um, that man, the more we read and the more we engage and the more we connect with the God through his, um, written word to us, uh, the more we will see change. Cause it's not just one day that we read or one even week that we read. It's over. The more we read, the more that, uh, kind of tills the soil, if you will. And the more that allows God to do the things in us uh, that he wants to do. And so I'm here in uh, Matthew chapter 16, this sermon series, as we work through this over the next several weeks leading up to Easter, the sermons are going to be out of the reading that you've done. So you should recognize this passage. And so I want to encourage you uh, that you've read this before. All right. One of, we'll do one of two things in the sermons as we, um, lead up to Easter. One will be, we'll take a particularly difficult or kind of crazy passage and we'll try to press a little bit on it, help us with that. Or like today, we'll take a big, big chunk of what we read and try to draw the thread together, which is what we're after today. Matthew um, chapter 16. You ready? Uh, verse one, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, um, let me just pause here for those of you who are new um, to the Bible or new to the, in particular, the New Testament. Pharisees and Sadducees were the religious leaders of the day, but they also had a ton of cultural and political clout. Okay. And so these are the leaders. This is who we're talking about. These are the folks um, that you would expect to, um, you know, to know what was right and what was wrong and, and people trusting themselves to that. So here we go. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came to test him and they asked him how, um, to show them a sign from heaven. So they came to Jesus and said, show us a sign. Verse two, he answered them. When it's evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, you say, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. If you're not familiar with what he's referencing, the sign of Jonah, you also read about that a few chapters earlier. I think it's Matthew 12, where he says, the son of man must be... Um, It's just going to be like Jonah, three days and three nights in the belly of the earth instead of the belly of the fish. And what he's doing is predicting um, his death and his resurrection. He's saying, you want a sign, that's going to be the sign. Your version of power is not going to be it. So let me give you two truths that will set up the big truth that's coming here. Truth number one, there will always be people, always. There will always be people who demand things from God. Hey, God, if you want me to believe in you, you need to do this for me. Hey, God, you want me to go to church? I need this to happen. Now, for some of us who have younger kids, we understand that bargain. We're like, oh, Lord, if you need me to make it today, like if you want me there, I'm going to need some help getting this kid dressed. Please help me. That, like that's a prayer you pray. I get it. This, I, we may be amping up the level here. I, I think these folks here are amping up the level a little bit more than that, okay? So this is not a prayer of desperation. This is a demand, and there's a difference. 
And the reason why I highlight this is because anytime I come to God on my terms, anytime you come to God on your terms, you're setting yourself up for something that you will experience as, as rebuke or um, you, you're setting yourself up for something that you will experience as distance. Oh, God, you didn't come through. Therefore, you must not be real. You must not be on my side. You must not be who you say you are. You must not be those things. When I demand God to do something for me, I am setting myself up as God and God is my servant instead of the other way around. Continuing on, verse 5. When the disciples reached the other side... They had forgotten to bring any bread. So Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, "Uh, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith. That's his phrase for the disciples pretty often. And it's something along the lines in our day and our age of you knuckleheads. It's a term of endearment, but still like, come on. Um, Why are you discussing this among yourselves uh, that you have no bread? Don't you yet perceive? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? So back in chapter 14, he fed 5,000 people, five loaves, a couple of fishes, no big deal. Uh, Verse 10, or the seven loaves um, for the 4,000, which was just before in Matthew chapter 15. I mean, so what's his point here? Hey, look, if you're really worried about bread, dude, we can handle bread. But that's not really what we're talking about. Verse 11. How is it that you fail to understand that I, not, that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then he understood that um, he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And here's uh, the second truth that, that goes along with that first one. There will always be people who misrepresent God. That's the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is, is they, they, they painted a picture through their teaching that God was going to be like this. And Jesus says, man, you, you got to be careful. You got to be careful about those people, about that particular teaching. And in our day and in our age, church family, oftentimes they sound really smart and really good um, while they're doing it. I, and I, I simply want to point that out to say, um, There are folks on YouTube, there are folks online, there are folks on podcasts who say all sorts of stuff about God. There will always be people who misrepresent God. And in doing so, I sound really good. So be careful there, Jesus says. Okay, so here's kind of the heart uh, of chapter 16. uh, And actually uh, uh, the, the heart of this section of Matthew, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So let's just pause here. Um, Jesus asked two questions. Uh, We'll take them one at a time. First one, what's the polling data here? (laughs) Like, we put a poll out in a field, uh, people were calling, hey, what's going on? Who who do people, um, in verse uh, 13 there, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Son of Man was his favorite title for himself. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And the response was, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Um, the response then is pretty much the response now. Um, that who, when you ask people who is Jesus, the answers then are related to some version of uh, what he said. He's some sort of incredible spiritual spokesman. Um, he is a tremendous uh, leader of a movement of people and a way of life. Or thirdly, he is, uh, he is fits in the kind of uh, 
pantheon of religious figures. Like he is a famous spiritual religious person who fits right up there with Muhammad and Gandhi and uh, Buddha and all the rest of them. Like you just put Jesus in the mix and go, man, this is who he is. That was then. It's pretty much now too. Like if we were to put out a poll and say, who do you think he is? Well, he was somebody who had some interesting things to say. He was a leader of a movement that I may or may not agree with. Or he's just a famous guy who did some religious stuff. Pretty much, pretty much the same thing. How many of us would answer the question similarly? Or how many of our friends would answer the question similarly? We've been, uh, some of you know, we've been involved with... Um, ministering to the Afghan refugees, and we have had some incredible conversations uh, about these kinds of things. Because the Quran speaks of Jesus. And we just, I, when we get into that particular section, I just consistently say, he did miracles, he died, and he rose again. He seems like a guy I really need to listen to. This is the kind of thing that we want to represent and to represent winsomely. Not like just, hey, he's one of the guys, he's some part of culture, he's some ethicist, he's some teacher, he's some something, something, something. Listen, um, he is unique. He is unique on the landscape of history. He does not compare apples to apples with all the rest of the religious leaders. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. He's the one that we need to hear from. He's the one that needs to speak into our lives. And he's the one that we can put our trust in. When we, when, we, um, when we give ourselves to this kind of response, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, some of the prophets. That is a culturally safe, for the most part, culturally safe answer. But man, spiritually, spiritually, it is, it is dangerous. Question number two. Verse 15. He said to them, But who do you, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And the reason why it's in all caps on the screen right there is because, um, and we kind of need a, we, honestly, if I had all the money in the world, one of the things I would do is put out a Texas version of the Bible so that we can understand it. Because there are often times when the Bible here, it says you, when it really means the plural of you, which in Texas we all know is, thank you so much. We need a y'all version. This is not that. He specifically looks at Peter. In this passage, all of the you is singular. He specifically looks at Peter and he says, but, and he goes, who do, who do you, who do you individually, who do you say that I am? Peter pipes up here, verse 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, Christ in the New Testament is, say, is the same as Messiah in the Old Testament, okay? So those, those two things are the exact same, just different languages, same uh, meaning, different languages. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. Some people think, I said this in the 830, and I, I mean, I, it was sort of joking, but like it's, it's genuine. For, like some people think, because they're not familiar with the story of the Bible and that kind of thing, some people think that Christ is like the last name of Jesus, you know, like... That's not the case. It's his title. Like Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the chosen one. Okay. And so when we say he's the Messiah, what we're saying is he's the one who from the get go, he, um, he was 
predicted. He was prophesied to come into this world. So in Genesis chapter 3, I mean, page 3 of the Bible, right after the whole thing went crazy and sideways and the um, snake and all that kind of stuff, God speaks. And he's speaking to the serpent and he says, hey, there's coming a seed, a a, a descendant, if you will, of the woman. And it's true, you're going to rise up and strike his heel, but he's coming off the top rope, uh, the top rope old style wrestling move, and he is going to crush your head. Genesis 3. And then it just continues on from there. The law points to a lamb, a, a sacrifice that needs to be made. Um, the kingdom, a king who is going to reign over and over. Um, th- these prophets speak about the one who's going to bring shalom, this, this sense of peace and rightness to the world. And on and on and on and on and on we could go. He is the one who was prophesied, who was predicted. He is the one uh, from the very get-go. And so there's a couple of things that, that go with that. The, the Messiah was, was cast in two roles. One was the Savior. And it's really one role, but people thought of it as two. One was the Savior. He's the king. He's the one who's going to come in. He's going to kick all the Romans out. All the bad guys got to go. The king, the Messiah is going to come in and make everything right, man. And rah, here he comes. Everybody wants a king. What kind of king are we talking about, though? Skip down to verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. What kind of king are we talking about? Everybody wants a king. A king who's exalted. Was Jesus exalted? Yes, it just happened to be on a cross. Everybody wants a king who's going to win. Did Jesus win? Yes, it was just through an empty tomb. Everybody wants a king who's going to rule and reign and make things right. Is, did Jesus do that? Yes, he, was, he ascended to the right hand of God, and he is in the process of taking over the world, man. And one day he's going to come back and make everything right. What, what kind of king, what kind of savior are we talking about? We're talking about a savior who is also the suffering servant. If you're not familiar with this particular thing, um, uh, there are several in the New Testament who didn't remember this part either. They wanted a king. They wanted uh, somebody who was going to come in and establish kind of a political entity. But Jesus is doing something far, far greater um, than that. This suffering um, servant is picked up. You see it. Now you can just jot this down in Isaiah 53, for instance, where um, the suffering servant comes and he takes on our sin. He um, the Bible talks about how um, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has gone, gone his own way. But the Lord has laid on him, on him, the iniquity of us all. He's the suffering servant. His exaltation was to a cross. His victory was out of a tomb. And his rule and reign is at the right hand of God. This is the king that we know. This is the king um, who is. It was a surprising thing. It was uh, 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 kind of a shocking thing. It was outside of their normal mindset, outside of the way that they would think about things. Outside, it was outside of all of those things. But it, but it is what it is. Here's Jesus' response. When Peter pipes up, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered, and he said three things. Number one, you're blessed. Verse 17, Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, which means Simon, the son of John or Jonah. You're blessed. You are blessed to see this. There are people who don't. 
You're blessed to see this. And so when we, when we gather together, let's remember that this is a blessing for us to, to be a part of this. This is a blessing for us to be able to say the things that we say together. A blessing for us to see the things that we get to see. That you're blessed that you see this. In particular, why? God's favor rests on you. Why? For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So you, you received this from God. You're not imagining it. You didn't make it up. You didn't just deduce it one day. You received this from God. This is why... It's so important for us as a church family, for you individually, for me individually, to find our voice in moments like this because we are the conduits through which truth comes into people's lives. And so we open our mouth and we testify to these things. And then um, we're not trying to like argue them into the kingdom or anything like that. God has to do the work, but we are the ones who, who bear testimony. We are the ones who speak the words. And so what happens, the way the Bible talks about it, it's got all these different images, um, we don't make them believe. Um, God lifts the veil from their eyes. That's 2 Corinthians 3. They were veiled and they had something over their eyes and then God lifts the veil from their eyes. Maybe you don't know that one. Maybe you know this one. I once was blind, but now I see. That's John chapter 9. John chapter 9, the guy's going, oh, I, look, I don't know everything about everything. I once was blind, but now I see. So there has to be a, a blindness lifted. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead, but now God has made us alive. Or uh, um, uh, Jesus in another place in, in the gospel of John, um, you were walking in darkness and now you have light. I mean, we can just keep going with these. So God has to do this. You receive this. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, that you see this. That's an amazing thing. And you need to know you received this from God. And the reason why uh, I think it's critical to just highlight this is that you Jesus is saying, you have answered the most personally important question that anybody could answer. And I I bring that down for you and for me today because it is critical for you as an individual, for you as an individual, for you as an individual to answer this question. Who is Jesus? Is he really who he says he is? One of the great prayers that you can pray, other people have prayed it all throughout church history, and God has done something something in their lives is, God, if you are who you say you are, please, please show yourself to me. You're not demanding. You're not stomping up and down. I'm not going to believe you if you don't do this. You're just saying, God, if you are who you say you are, please show me. And in that moment right there, they have come one step closer to answering the most important question that they can answer. And for you and for me, it's the same. Who, Who do you say that he is? Who do you say that he is? He's the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus is excited about this. Verse um, 18. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, he's doing a little wordplay here. So let me just do a little... Um, you are Petros. That's how you spell, uh, say it in Greek. You are Peter, Petros. And on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. So you're Peter, and with faith like yours, I'm going to build my church. Like on that kind of confession of faith, that I'm the Messiah, that I'm the anointed one, that I'm the chosen one, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but I, just, I do want to highlight this. Gates. Of hell shall not prevail again. Like gates. Gates are defensive weapons. Can we all agree on this? Therefore, 
the, when the gates, the defensive gates of hell do not prevail, the church then is on which side of the ball here? That's, that wasn't rhetorical. That was like a genuine question. Like if they're playing defense, we are on. That's right, because we push the kingdom forward. We deliver food to our Afghan friends across the way. We tell our neighbors about the good news of Jesus. We serve someone who looks like they're in need. I mean, we do those things, and what we are doing when we do that, we're playing offense. We're like, hey, all you defensive people over there, y'all hang in there because we're coming in like a freight train. We are the ones pushing the light forward. We are the ones pushing back the kingdom of darkness. And the guarantee is, based on that confession of faith, what? They won't stay closed. They don't win in the end. We go pushing and they have to move. The gates of hell shall not prevail. So church, family, we play offense in this joint. I was expecting. You want me to preach that part again? I got it in my nose. Like we play offense here. We are the ones who move the ball down the field. Amen to that. I'll say it for you. A couple of you are scared. Amen. Okay. Verse 19, here's what offense sounds like. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Uh, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of the heavens, and whatever you bind uh, on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Um, Our participation in this kingdom is really about opening doors for others. Jesus has given us the keys to the kingdom. Keys, I mean, keys can be used to lock some stuff up. Yeah, we can agree with that. But the kind of keys that Jesus is handing us are keys to actually make it more available. The, the, the kind of access that Jesus is, make, is offering to people through us, this is what we're talking about. I, mean, I say that because just a couple of chapters later, in chapter 23, we'll read it, I think, on Tuesday, um, Jesus lays the wood to the scribes and the Pharisees. In in chapter 23, he has seven different sayings where he goes, woe to you. This is chapter 23, verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you shut the kingdom of the heavens in people's faces. And you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Because of their teaching and because of their lifestyle, they were the ones who were shutting, people's, uh, shutting the kingdom in people's faces. Sorry, you don't fit in here. Sorry, we're not going to let you in. And they themselves were actually shutting themselves out by doing so. Jesus hands us the keys so that you and I can step into a world and say, hey, listen, Jesus has died not just for people who look like me, not just for people who think like me, not just for people who vote like me, not just for people who are kind of wired like me, Not just for people who read like me or speak like me or sing like me or worship like Jesus died for every single person that you know. There is not a single person in your world that he does not value, that he did not give his life for, and were they to turn to him, that he would not receive and forgive and give freedom to. Not a single person in your world. Our participation is mostly about throwing open the kingdom of the heavens that Jesus has offered for others. We are given the keys of the kingdom for that reason. And our message is the kingdom is available to you and to you and to you over there and to you people who sin like me. Oh, and to you people who don't sin like me. You sin differently than me? The kingdom's available to you. Our message is the availability of the kingdom to all types. 
Thank you. I, 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 I want to back this thing up and go at it all over again because I just I'm lit up about this stuff. I need you to come along with me here. Um, and then he says, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. He says the same thing in chapter 18. Um, I won't pretend to know everything that he's talking about there. I do know this, that our faith exercised in this world is a really, really powerful force. I don't know what it all means, binding, loosing, all that stuff. I mean, there's some cool stuff that I'm sure that's there. I'm not sure what all it means. I have some inclinations and I have some guesses, but I do know this. Faith is a powerful force in this world. When we step out in faith, God goes to work not only in our lives, but in people's lives. When we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all the rest really does get added to us. And on and on we could go. Faith is a powerful, powerful force in this world. So when we step out in ministry, when we step out in service, when we step out in the things that we're supposed to step, uh, step out into, guess what? Some really amazing stuff happens. So uh, Peter gets this revelation. He's like, man, Jesus, this is awesome. Can't wait for you to die and rise again. And, and actually, that's not how it went at all. Verse 21 again. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine? Peter grabs the boss and is like, come here, dude. we got to have a conversation. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Because what kind of king does he have in his mind? The king who comes in on the white horse, man, the king who, who leads the parade, right? And this is the kind of king that he thinks he is. And so Peter cannot see some things. The very first thing that Peter cannot see is his own arrogance. Anybody else have that problem? Peter cannot see his own arrogance. And part of his arrogance is he has, a ver he has a vision of what the Messiah, he thinks, what he thinks the Messiah should be instead of what the Messiah actually is. He doesn't understand the kind of Messiah that Jesus is. What kind of Messiah is he? Verse 21. He's going to suffer many things, be killed, and on the third day, rise. He's not establishing an earthly kingdom that's going to make it a couple of centuries. He's establishing a spiritual kingdom that is going to last forever. Because of his arrogance and because he didn't understand, he, he also cannot see the kind of life that Jesus, Jesus is calling us to live. And listen, folks, those things go together. If I think Jesus is going to, do, uh, to, to be um, an, an earthly uh, Messiah who's going to bring a political kingdom, then I'm going to position myself to be a part of that political kingdom. If I think Jesus is going to um, do this other thing, whatever it may be that I you know, kind of want him to do, then I'm going to position myself to be a part of that. But the kind of life that Jesus is calling us to live is tied directly to the kind of life that Jesus himself lived. Look at verse 24. So Jesus told his disciples, including the chucklehead that he just 
let's just read the rest of the Peter. Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Um, But he turned and he said to Peter, get behind me. What's it say? Satan, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me for you're not thinking, you're setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter, your head is not right. That's what he's saying. Verse 24, then Jesus told all of his disciples, if anyone would come after me, anyone, if, okay, so here, if anyone is open, this is a deal for anyone. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We'll just pause right there. The kind of life Jesus is calling us to live is a life where we die to ourselves and follow him. We surrender our lives and follow him. Some people think, oh, well, the life of following Jesus is about, you know, uh, going to church and serving in church and praying and reading your Bible and giving money and, you know, obeying the things you're supposed to do. Like, no, it's not. Kylie said it on the testimony. It's not a, a list that you're just going to go through. Check, 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 check. Oh, today I did it all. The life of following Jesus, he, according to his own words right here, he, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. You die to yourself and you follow him. And in doing so, you are transformed so that you do read your Bible, so that you do pray, so that you do obey, so that you do give, so that you do gather with his people, so that you do all of those things. But the kind of life Jesus is calling us to live is the kind of life that he lived because he himself took up his cross and he himself lived according to the will of God. This is the invitation for you and for me. And listen, it is a life. Oh man, is it a life. Did you see what... Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Like he wants to invite us to life. It's a life marked by freedom. It's a life marked by forgiveness. It's a life marked by goodness. We're going to pick this up next week. Um, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. It's a life marked by these things. It's a life. But it's a life that's only found when you and I die to ourselves and follow him. He's not asking us to do anything that he didn't do himself. And furthermore, he comes to reside in us. He lives in us so that we can then do those things that he's asking us to do. So here's the invitation today. Do you know that kind of life? Do you have that kind of life? For some of us who've been Christians in here, I just want to offer this to you. Maybe the Holy Spirit is just through the reading, putting his finger on something and just going, hey, we need to talk about this. Die to yourself in that moment right there and follow him and you'll find life. Some of you need to bring some things out of the dark and put them in the light before him. Some of you need to establish some things, die to yourself in order to establish some things and follow him. For every follower of Jesus in here, for every Christian in here, that's the truth. For some of you, though, maybe in the room, maybe watching online, you're not a Christian. And the best thing that I could say to you is he is inviting you to life. He's saying, come on, come on, come to life. You think, oh, I got to get my junk straight. No, 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 no. He's the junk straightener. Like, that's what he does. Yeah, but there's that one closet. Don't worry about that closet. He can clean it. He's the one who will put our life as it needs to be. But how does it happen? 
You surrender yourself to him. Take up your cross, it says. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. You put your trust in him. He forgives you of your sin and gives you a new life, a life marked by freedom, a life that is marked by eternity. And that's the invitation today. If you're not a Christian in here, you're watching online, you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to give your life to him today. I'm going to pray for us. We'll have a song of response and then close. But let me just take a moment and pray for all of us gathered this morning.